Hello and welcome to the Third Sector podcast. I'm Rebecca Cooney, Senior Features and Analysis Writer. And I'm Emily Burt, Editor of Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Each week we sit down for a quick-fire conversation about the interesting or unusual goings-on in the charity world. And this week we are delving into Kids Company. Camilla Batman-Gelich, the former founder and chief executive of the now-defunct children's charity, along with former trustees of the charity, have appeared in court in recent weeks as the official receiver seeks to disqualify them from serving as company directors for their roles in the collapse of the charity five years ago. Third Sector senior reporter Stephen Delahunty has been in court at various points throughout the case and we'll be chatting to him later on about what he's seen there. That's all to come. When Kids Company collapsed in 2015, it sent shockwaves through the charity sector. So what happened and what is the current court case all about? So I completely missed this case when it first came to light five years ago, but I think we're going to now try and take a crack at a potted summary of it. It was a hugely extraordinary and complicated case, so uh, we'll do our best. All right, so Kids Company was founded in 1996. It was the darling of government and celebrities, and it worked with children in London and later in Bristol and Liverpool who had slipped through the social support net. But by the time the charity closed its doors in August 2015, it was at the centre of a huge tangle of accusations. Now, some of these, like allegations of sexual abuse, were never really borne out. But others, like concerns about the charity's finances, did appear to carry a lot more weight. So, right, so for several years, concerns were raised about the sustainability of the charity, which was said to be operating on a financial knife edge by the Financial Times and to have a serious cash flow problem by the Charity Commission. But these concerns were always waved aside by the charismatic founder and chief executive, Camilla Batman-Gelich, who possessed an impressive talent for attracting large donations from a huge range of funders, from celebrities, from businesses and from government. The charity received at least £42 million from government between 2002 and its eventual closure in 2015. That's a lot. Yeah, yeah, she was good at it right up until she wasn't. Right, Okay. so then she wasn't. And this was when the crunch point came. So in July 2015, the government gave Kids Company a grant of £4.3 million. But then just weeks later, the charity came back to say it was on the point of closure and it requested a further emergency grant of £3 million. So the government did actually award that grant. But they did so on the condition that Batman Gelich step aside as the chief executive of Kids Company and that the charity carry out a restructure. It was just days later, on August the 5th, that the charity closed its doors. So, as Rebecca said, Kids Company received more than £42 million in public money during its lifetime. So after it closed down, there were two parliamentary inquiries held, and their findings, I would say, were fairly downbeat. Uh, The House of Commons Public Administration and Constitutional Affairs Committee said that the charity's closure happened because of an extraordinary catalogue of failures in governance and control at every level of the organisation. And the Public Accounts Committee, they then went for the government. They criticised the government's approach to the charity and they called for the government to organise a review into how it makes non-competitive grants to charities. Uh, The charity regulator, the Charity Commission, they also opened an inquiry. But that inquiry is currently on hold until the Insolvency Service has finished its work. So there's a lot of different inquiries and investigations and things going on. 
Yeah. Uh, which brings us to the current case in the High Court. So the Insolvency Service, through its official receiver, is now seeking to have seven trustees, including the erstwhile chair of the charity, Alan Yentob, as well as Batman Gellidge, disqualified from serving as directors for up to six years over their role in the charity's demise. And the bit about Batman Gellidge is a bit unusual. She wasn't technically a director. Normally, um, with a charity, only trustees are considered to be directors. But the official receiver has argued that she had so much control over the charity that she might as well have been a director. Director. And wrangling about this is part of why it's taken so long for this to come to court. So it's like the kind of a bit like a spectre that hangs over the charity sector. Um, Rebecca, why is this such a big deal for charities as a whole? Um, so interestingly, I actually, um, I mean, to say this, I had my job interview for Third Sector the day Kids Company collapsed. No, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, Stephen Cook, who was the editor at the time, and Andy Ricketts, who's still our news editor, were like tag teaming interviewing me and then going out to send the bulletin off because everything kind of all hell had broken loose. Uh, and they just had this this person who turned up at the office wanting to talk to them about why she'd be great to come and work here and they were like yeah okay uh sit there and so did you did you sit there going this is an environment i want to be in for five years this is where i want to be it seems like a calm and relaxing environment (laughs) (laughs) yes and uh, yeah the laid-back laissez-faire attitude i've come to know and love at third sector um (laughs) But um, yeah, and I mean, that was um, so like I because I'd had the job interview, like I had been kind of doing the research and paying a lot of attention to those news stories like you do when you have a job interview. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of I remember this as being a huge story, but it's interesting that you kind of said, oh, it sort of went over your head at the time because you weren't working in charities. Um, but yeah, for the sector as a whole, it was a bit of a shock. And I think it became it came at a at the beginning of a period of soul searching for charities. You know, it was around the same time as the fundraising scandals with Olive Cook and so on. Um, And um, that's led to a whole reform of how fundraising works. And I really think it was the beginning or part of the beginning of a shift of how charities are seen. So like I said, I was doing all this kind of research. And I remember before I started working for Third Sector, seeing Batman Gellidge on, it was Newsnight or one of the news programmes being interviewed. And when she or the charity was criticised, she kind of responded with, but we're a charity, we're doing good. You can't criticise us, we do good things. And that argument just wouldn't wash now. I mean, can Mm. you imagine now any charity putting that forward? Um, And there's much more of a consensus in the sector now that it's not enough just to do good. You have to do good well. And I think that was Kids Company was part of that kind of realisation and that sort of um, the beginning of of kind of that being a, a very big part of the discourse within the sector. So one big issue with Kids Company was that it didn't have any reserves. And it's kind of, again, gone down in legend as like a cautionary tale for charities about the dangers of not having enough money in reserve and of not having those strong governance measures in place, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it's kind of become something of a stick to beat the sector with. So in May, Sir Stephen Bubb wrote a piece in The Times calling for an inquiry into charities and the pandemic. And, you know, a cynic might think that perhaps he was he was hoping to be leading that inquiry uh, when he was writing this piece. A cynical person. A cynical person. Yeah, not me, not me, but a cynic. Um, in this piece, he kind of said that the, the current system of charity governance with unpaid trustees had often shown itself to be incapable of effective oversight. And kind of asked sort of how many more kids company style scandals do we need in order to demonstrate this? Which I don't know, I found a bit odd because the last one was kids company. And that was five years ago. So it's kind of become this sort of bogeyman for the sector and, and maybe unfairly so, I think. Right. And so Camilla batman has always strenuously argued that Kids Company did nothing wrong. 
She maintains the allegations of sexual abuse, which never really amounted to anything, with a police investigation failing to uncover any evidence of criminality or failures of safeguarding by staff. She argued these allegations were made maliciously because the charity was too outspoken. And she also says that these allegations scared off an external donor who was poised to give the charity an extra £3 million just before it collapsed in 2015. And she argues that the charity was plugging an enormous gap in provision left by the state, that there was this overwhelming need uh, and that no one else was taking care of these kids. And that's kind of why the charity overspent so much, because, you know, the, the need was there and they wanted to help. Um, and, you know, there were also allegations that money was spent in questionable ways, stories of cash being handed directly to kids, gifts being bought for them, a central London house with a swimming pool that was rented for them. To which she's always said, well, why shouldn't these children have nice things? And on the face of it, it is difficult to argue with some of those points. You know, you can get into the, the details and the back and forth of it. But, you know, there are some, some points there that are hard to argue with. And so now we come to this case that's in the High Court. And I know that, interestingly, a number of charities are watching this court case very, very closely. And what I find interesting is that I've spoken with some people who quite bluntly have said, well, look, I mean, there but for the grace of God go all of us. Obviously, all of the evidence points towards the charity's finances being a serious mess. But I was speaking to someone recently and they said, look, if this year, if 2020 has shown us anything, it's the income really can be there one day and gone the next day. And so there is, I think, some concern among some people that if the official receiver successfully manages to get the former trustees either disqualified or struck off for a number of years, it could be quite a concerning precedence for charity trustees or charity leaders who then do find themselves in the future in a financially unviable situation that's out of their hands. So obviously the kids' company case is an extraordinary case. And uh, as you observed, Rebecca, we haven't seen anything like this for five years now. But, you know, do you think that there's any risk that these rulings you know, could potentially put charity leaders and boards at a much greater risk of being disqualified? Or do you just think that this is a kind of an isolated case and will be ruled and judged on in isolation? I think Camilla Batmangelich being included as a director is interesting because, like I said before, like normally it's only the trustees that are considered the director and then the chief executive works for them. And, and there is a whole debate about the responsibilities that trustees have. These are unpaid volunteers who give up their time, who may not know the ins and outs of, of, of things. So where does that, when something goes wrong, where does that responsibility lie? And in charity law, it does lie with trustees. And that's kind of, that's a given, you know, and, and the Charity Commission does now have the power to strike off people without these kind of court cases. They can just say, you can't be a charity director you can't be a charity trustee for you know x number of years mm -hmm. or they can ban them indefinitely that's you know those are the powers that they they do just have and similarly if you're in charge of a company and it goes bankrupt you're liable for that you've always been liable for that and that's maybe it's a conversation we need to have this debate about unpaid trustees again and you know what trusteeship really means but then you know and whether this is i think the bigger question is whether or not this is going to put off people from becoming trustees mm. and quite possibly it will if you look at alan yentob the charity's chair he is probably the one with the most to lose in this scenario you know he has this huge reputation outside of and this huge career outside of the charity I imagine not being able to be a director of a company would be a bit of a problem for him, actually. Mm. Um, and he's probably the one with the most to lose. So I think it does set precedence. Like I say, the the bit that is kind of the the change in the law or the change in, in how it's been applied previously is about um, uh, Camilla Batman-Gelich 
and, and charity chief executives being liable for the decisions of the trustees. Um, so, yeah, I don't I don't know what impact it's going to have. But, it, yeah, it may well put people off if it's seen to be kind of that they are taking the fall for something. Who knows? Obviously, the first thing we will have to do is, is of course, wait for the ruling, wait for the judgment to come. Um, the trial is ongoing. But Third Sector's senior reporter, Stephen Delahunty, has been covering this case from the High Court most weeks. So we caught up with him at the end of proceedings on Wednesday, the 9th of December, to find out what the latest news was. I started off by asking him where the case was at the moment. This is the ninth week of what is a 10-week, what's been a 10-week case. And today we were hearing from Vincent O'Brien, who was a trustee of Kids Company since about 2007, 2008, I think. And he was being cross-examined by the defence legal teams about his previous two or three days' evidence that he had given to the official receiver. And there was actually lots of pop culture comparisons today, which made a slightly more interesting um, experience. Um, he was compared to Scotty from Star Trek at one point and described as, was it the engineer of the trustee board? Um, <laughs> which seemed quite fitting. Um, and yeah, one of the defence teams also read a passage from a satirical anti-war novel to try and make draw a comparison about the situation the trustees found themselves in in terms of their responsibility. So, so it being a catch-22? Yeah, that they were sort of, you know, if they were, you know, aware of their responsibilities and then they were exercising them properly and, you know, the charity still went bankrupt, so that is sort of their fault. But if they were aware, aware of their responsibilities and there was some sort of incompetence going on, then that's also their fault. So he was trying to make mm. the case that, yeah, they can't, you know, that's the official receiver's position and the trustees struggle to win that argument, basically. It's a, it's a very difficult argument to come out on the right side of. But I thought, Vincent, um, I think I'm OK to be on first name terms after nine weeks in court, to be honest. <laughs> um, I think I've heard that right. So Vincent was... Yeah, I feel like he, he was very good today in terms of defending his position. We heard in court today that he'd started nearly 30 companies in uh, over his career, uh, you know, working in finance and uh, hedge funds, and you know, has been the trustee of multiple charities, and he was the one who, um, for the most part, it seems, took on you know asking difficult financial questions. His background is in accountancy and audit, and yeah, he came across as defending both his role very well. It's been an interesting day in court. So, what have the key issues been over the last nine weeks? Some of the main consensus bits, I guess, have been that even though charities are, you know, technically sort of limited companies, the the official receiver is applying commercial law without taking into account the nature, you know, of an unpaid trustee role uh, and mm. and how that feeds into. Um, you know, the organisational structure and running of a charity as, a, as um, opposed to a complete, you know, a solely commercial entity. As part of that, you know, to disqualify someone, there's a couple of there's a couple of ways you can do it in terms of being unfit or, you know, dishonest, acting in bad faith or just incompetent. Mm. So, yeah, between the, the, the seven trustees and Camilla, those are either all being applied or one or two are being applied in certain ways to meet the requirements for being unfit mm. and, or, and to get them disqualified. A lot of it was around the sustainability of the model of kids' company, a sort of self-referral model, as opposed to, you know, organisations referring people the, in, into, you know, systems of support. Mm. The problem at the time in relation to getting government funding was that the government didn't really recognise that model 
which was part of why there seemed like an ongoing battle between the charity and the government to get grant funding at times, even though it still did get, you know, tens of millions of pounds over, over, over the course of its lifespan before it went bankrupt, but it was just never quite able to access the amount it needed in that time. So um, I guess a lot of the debate in court was about whether there should have been more focus on filling up reserves rather than just spending, you know, that money on charitable aims and trying to live more within its means than constantly trying to increase the level of funding it could get. Mm. And again, whether trustees were doing enough to scrutinise that process and how sustainable that model is. Some other things that have came up as well, though, in terms of like the process, there's a lot of debate about how the ev- evidence has been presented and, you know, the omitting of evidence to support a particular view rather than it being a completely objective investigation. And this has, yeah, been an ongoing point of contention between, like, yeah, the official receiver and defence teams, for example, have been able to point to documents where if you'd have read out, you know, the sentence the defence team read out, it would have changed your entire understanding of how that email chain went <laughs> or how that you know the minutes of that meeting were understood so yeah that's been another point of contention as well that makes sense so obviously camilla batman gellidge is this kind of larger than life incredibly colorful character you know famous for sort of being able to charm money out people back in the day how has her evidence gone down in court <laughs> i mean all of that definitely comes across i mean for the start she appeared via video link but that you know that still came across in her appearance. I feel like my view is probably slightly one-sided because, unfortunately, I only got to go on the days when the official receiver was questioning Camilla rather than when the defence teams were. And yet, certainly, her personality came across. But I think at times, both her and the official receiver were exasperated <laughs> with each other um, because, you know... The official receiver's case relies on very specific forensic questioning of a particular date and a particular meeting or a particular email chain. And, you know, who can remember an email chain from six years ago? It's it's very hard to, to, to do that. So sometimes, and I guess trying to provide some context, Camilla go off maybe on a tangent that might have been relevant, but would be cut off because, you know, the official receiver didn't think that they needed to hear that or... um. You know, it's going on for too long. In some ways, that didn't come across very well. And another criticism was that it seemed like Camilla, you know, hadn't prepared because she hadn't seen a document before that the official receiver presented, for example. But again, if you're given a document bundle with 20,000 documents in or 20,000 pages, then I'm not sure how anyone, you know... That is a lot of detail. Yeah, it's, it's difficult to assess that preparedness or lack of, depending on which view you take. Um how much um, weight the judge gives that, do you know what I mean? Um, mm. But I think what I can say did come across well is that, um, you know, obviously her sincerity for, you know, founding the charity and the need for the charity and the work that it did was very evident. And certainly other allegations that came out um, around the time the charity was going bankrupt of salacious spending and, and financial mismanagement and um, all that sort of thing, the official receiver hasn't provided any hard evidence of that at all okay and and how about alan yentop so he's the former chair of the charity how did how did his evidence go down and um, what was that like yeah i mean i think you can tell that you know he spent some time on the tv um <laughs> and around <laughs> the bbc because he yeah had a very you know a very cruel temperament and was able to defend the charity so i think he'd been there for nearly 20 years so he obviously had a very you know was very invested in it had an emotional connection but yeah he was able to defend the charity without coming across as defensive and he even got he looked like he got 
visibly upset at one point while he was sort of sticking up for the charity's philosophy and, you know, his relationship with Camilla and the other trustees as well. And he had nothing, you know, nothing but praise for, for the work that he did. Yentob as well made the point that the charity got fobbed off a lot by the government, but there was also just absolutely lots of evidence in written correspondence and emails from either, you know, the last three prime ministers we've had or people high up in the government praising the charity and saying they would get more funding at some point. Mm. And that was either, you know, through relationships um, Yentop had himself um, or through other trustees or, or, or Camilla. So what happens now? Well, next week, the, the official receiver and all the defence teams get to um, present their closing arguments, their take of the last nine weeks to what they think are the, you know, the main points and the facts of the case. And then we can expect the decision in January, I think. Ah, OK. If I was going to put a bet on it, I would say that no one, <laughs> no one's going to get disqualified based on what little bit of commercial law and insolvency um <laughs> I have learned over the last nine weeks. <laughs> Interesting. So, you know, the defence teams have made this decision as well, that if this is the level of accountability that is going to be expected of all trustees in future, then not arguably no one would want to become a trustee. So, yeah, I feel like maybe they've brought the case to the charity. You know, it was such a big deal at the time when the charity did go bankrupt. And it makes sense from their point of view as the official receiver you know, if you can only bring so many cases a year to do it with such a high profile mm. organisation. But I don't see from the evidence I've heard how there is enough proof there that any of the trustees acted, like I said before, dishonestly or in bad faith or any, you know, meet the criteria to, to, um, yeah, to be disqualified for the next six or seven years. Brilliant. Uh, well, we'll wait and see what happens in January. But uh, thanks very much and uh, good luck with the rest of the mm. coverage. Each week, we're putting together a coronavirus care package. Some good news that we've heard in the sector that will give us a little bit of happy energy in these weekly episodes. So, Emily, what have you got for us? I heard about this on the radio just this morning, and I don't know if I'm just having a particularly emotional day, but this has genuinely made my heart so, so happy this morning. And I hope that I get to carry it with me all week. So the good news is that a group of researchers working on a project with international not-for-profit, the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society, have been busy sailing around off the coast of Western Mexico. And they think they might have discovered a completely new species of whale. Ooh. Ooh, yeah, exactly. That is just the right response. So the group were out on a trip looking for a certain type of beaked whale. Um, beaked whales are one of the most mysterious groups of mammals on the planet because they live in these deep sea habitats and they are incredibly rare. We think there are maybe 23 different kinds of beaked whale knocking around in the ocean, but we only have discovered about three or four types. So they were out on a trip looking for one of these known types of beaked whales and they saw three of them surfacing near their boat. So they took photographs, they took videos and then they used an underwater microphone to record the acoustic signals, the clicks and the squeaks that the whales were sending out underneath the water. And what they found is that these signals were different to any other sound that was known to science. So the marine mammal researcher Dr Jay Barlow said, we saw something new. We saw something that was not expected in this area and something that does not match either visually or acoustically anything that is known to exist. 
He said, it sends chills up and down my spine when I think that we might have accomplished what most people would say was truly impossible. Finding a large mammal that exists on this earth that is totally unknown to science. How great is that? We've got a new whale in the world. I just, uh, I, I just thought that was genuinely a fantastic piece of news. It is great. It is really, really lovely. Although to be a Debbie Downer, or not to be, maybe, maybe this is more exciting, but like he, he, the scientist says mammal. He doesn't say whale. You're saying whale. Like how much proof do we have that this isn't some kind of like sea monster or like Kraken or like Cthulhu situation going on? Like it is 2020. Are we sure Cthulhu isn't rising from the deep? Um, Rebecca, you are pouring. Just, I, and, you know, maybe that's interesting. That's exciting for science too. Um, but yeah, it could be a whale. It could be, you know, uh, the end of the world. Who knows? Um, or it could be some kind of sea monster. Here there be monsters. You are pouring seawater, okay, on the, the genuinely the happiest thing that's happened to me all week. And you're just like, nah, you know, although, okay, all right, I will give you this. Honestly, the short answer, okay, maybe we don't know it's a whale. And if I had my bingo card for 2020 laid out, honestly, the call of Cthulhu could well be on there. But I just simply don't have the emotional bandwidth to visualise a water-based apocalypse right now. Um, so I am going to put my trust in the scientists who study whales. And if they've got a photograph that looks like a whale, I'm just going to say it's a new whale. Um, when I was like younger, I desperately wanted to be a marine biologist. That was my thing. I think it was growing up as a kind of first generation of the Blue Planet audience. When I was nine, we used to watch it on the telly and listen to David Attenborough and all the stuff about the sea and he'd be kind of going, ah, oh, it's the most mysterious place there is. <laughs> um, and I just think, isn't it amazing that decades later, we are still finding species that we just didn't know about the existence of. And particularly at a time when you know, we know that the climate situation for the world is is diabolical and, we're, you know, global warming and everything, it's, it's, it's a catastrophe and we do have to address it really, really soon. But just the fact that we can still be finding new species of animal that we have so far been completely unaware of, that for me just feels so, so hopeful right now. It is wonderful. It is hopeful. I wouldn't, I mean, I don't know that a sea serpent is necessarily bad news. It could be quite exciting if it turns out there is a sea serpent knocking around as well. That's also quite cool. Uh, but yes, no, new whales, new sea serpents, all good. And if it's a kraken, let's just hope it's like a friendly one. Yeah. Like a cool guy. Cool, friendly kraken. Okay. Awesome. Well, I hope we can find something that is equally good next week. Me too, me too. Uh, another species of whale, perhaps, or a bird. That would be good. Um, we'll be back with another episode soon. So make sure you subscribe to this, the Third Sector podcast, on your favourite podcast app to be the first to know about it. And until then, I am Emily Burt. And I'm Rebecca Cooney. And our producer is Lindsay Riley at Rethink Audio. So we will see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>